Welcome to the study of the book of Revelation, taught by Michael Fitzgerald, senior pastor of Clifford Baptist Church. These lessons come from a Wednesday night study of the book, so the format is more of a classroom setting. Included in this Revelation series are written study notes, which can be accessed with each lesson in the series. We are in the fifth installation of a study through the book of the Revelation in the New Testament, the last book of your Bible. And uh, this is five out of somewhere around 40 sessions that we're going to share together as we walk verse by verse through this amazing book of God's Word. As we progress along in this series of Revelation, we remember uh, that the Apostle John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. That was an island in the Aegean Sea. It served as the Alcatraz for the Roman Empire. The worst of the criminals were sent to Patmos, and most all of them, once they arrived on the island, would never leave that island, but would die there. As John was on the island of Patmos one Sunday, God lifted him up to the throne room of heaven, and John saw an awesome vision of Jesus Christ. Now remember, some six decades before, John had walked with Jesus uh, on the roads of Galilee, and he served with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as a minister and as a disciple. And of course, when he walked with Jesus in those days as a disciple, in that three years of ministry, he saw Jesus dressed in clothing that was of the period of the day, more peasant clothing than anything. If you remember the gospel word about Jesus and his clothing, he only had one set of clothes. We know that he did not have a home. He did not have a place to lay his head. We also know that most likely he simply wore uh, crude sandals for shoes. And that's the vision that John carried of Jesus Christ. However, as he sees Jesus lifted up to the throne room of heaven, he sees a very different Lord. He sees Jesus who is now dressed in a judge's clothing, mighty, beautiful, shining. He sees Jesus as having snow white hair, hair that uh, implies sinlessness and for, uh, perfection. It says that Jesus' voice rolled as the mighty waters. In, uh, in studies that we have done prior to this, I have said that I believe that Jesus had a very strong human voice to begin with. Anyone who can address a crowd of 5,000 people and be heard had a great voice. However, it says that his voice in this throne room of heaven rolled like mighty waters. In other words, when Jesus speaks now, everyone has to listen. In his day of ministry in those three years, there were those who would not listen and those who would reject him and those who would walk away. But when Jesus speaks now, every person will have to hear his word. When John sees Jesus Christ in the throne room, he sees from his mouth extending a two-edged sword. One edge of the sword cuts to bless the saved, and one edge of the sword cuts to judge the lost. John falls at Jesus' mighty feet. He falls in reverence. He falls in respect. He falls in fear. But if you remember, Jesus lays his hand on John and says, fear not. And even though the picture of what John is seeing is so different from that three years of ministry and that 
climax of Jesus' life of hanging on the cross to atone for our sin and seeing him in this mighty, resurrected, powerful, judging form, yet something familiar happens when Jesus lays his hand on John because he remembers Jesus' touch from those many years ago. Now, as Jesus touches John and tells him to fear not, he gives him an assignment. He said, I want you to write down three things to send to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, let's just go over them very briefly once again. Here's the outline of the book of the Revelation. It is in chapter 1, verse 9. The outline of the book is this. Write down the vision that he had seen of Jesus. That is in chapter 1. And then he also says, write down a message that is individual for each one of the seven churches of Asia Minor. That's chapters 2 and 3. And then the third assignment in this writing of the book of the Revelation is to write down the prophecy of the future as John hears it. And that's chapters 4 through 22. Now, the amazing thing that I want you to understand tonight, and we will see this over and over and over again, I believe that the Apostle John on that island of Patmos wrote down many things of prophecy that were going to happen in days yet to come, even in our own time, days yet to come before us. And I believe that he wrote down many things that he did not understand what he was writing. But he wrote under the dictation uh, and the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in the midst now of studying the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Last week we began the study by saying that these letters really serve two purposes. Number one, they were absolutely an individual letter for each one of those churches. It addressed that church of Asia Minor in particular However, the second purpose that these seven letters uh, serves is that these letters are speaking to us as the modern church and what their message is. I don't believe that there is one thing that's not covered that happens in the modern church that did not happen in these seven churches of Asia Minor. We will see positives, we will see negatives, but these letters dated over 2,000 years ago serve right now to teach us that our church is still in the hand of the Lord and we are still under His protection and we still face the same things that the church faced many, many years ago. Now, last week we looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, in the midst of Jesus' positive words to Ephesus about their witness, about their ministry, about their patience, about their labor, He brings one major condemnation against the church. He said, you have left your first love. In other words, the motivation for your ministry is not entirely centered in a passion for me. You've left your first love of service and ministry and loving others because you passionately love me. Your church has become a little more of a, a machine a little more of a tradition, a little more of a routine than a ministry that's fired by your love for me. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, in order for your church to continue to minister and to continue to survive, you must repent and you must return back to that first love of serving because you love me, because you're getting your word and your passion directly from me. Those words are also for us 
Our ministry can never be simply routine. Our ministry can never be we serve out of habit. We serve because we've always done it that way before. But our ministry, as was the ministry of Ephesus, is always to be driven by our love for Jesus Christ as our Savior. And our desire and our need to take that good news, not just within this congregation, but to take it out to the world. Because there are lost people who, if they do not hear and respond to this word, will die and go to hell. And that is the absolute truth of God's word. We can't sugarcoat it and we can't change it. We have to have a passion for the Savior so that we want to see the world saved. That's what takes a doctor to Central Asia a man who could probably be making hundreds of thousands of dollars in this culture, and yet he makes much, much less, but he says it's not a sacrifice because this is where the Lord has sent me. Where has the Lord sent you and me that we might take that love? Wherever he sends us, it is not a sacrifice. It is a response to our love for him to take the good news to the world. The words for us are certainly a challenge that we can never dwindle down to simply routine and habit. Our ministry is always driven of a love for Jesus and our passion for souls. And that never gets old, but it is renewed every day, every day that we rise. Okay, tonight we're going to look at the second letter, the letter to Smyrna. And this church in Smyrna, and the letter is contained in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Now, Smyrna is the martyr church. Of the seven, this is by far the most persecuted church of the seven. The word Smyrna means myrrh. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Uh, We remember the wise men bringing the infant Jesus, those three treasures. Gold stood for his royalty. Frankincense stood for his holiness. And myrrh symbolized his death. Myrrh was a spice that was used to embalm the dead in that day. Smyrna was the church that faced persecution and death every day because, simply because, they expressed their faith in the Lord Jesus in the culture in which they lived. The city does still exist today. The city of Smyrna still does exist. It is today called Izmir Turkey. Now, in the days of the Revelation, there were temples in Smyrna to gods of Zeus, Diana, Aphrodite, and Apollo. So these Christians then were surrounded by a society that truly wanted to get rid of the church. They were surrounded by a godless, uh, idol-worshiping society that wanted no part of the church. In fact, Fifty years after this letter was written to the church at Smyrna, there was a pastor there. And if you Google his name, you will find information on him. His name was Polycarp. And at 86 years of age, as he pastored the church at Smyrna, he was burned to death by this society because of his pastoring that church, and he would not renounce Jesus Christ. He was burned alive as the pastor of the church because he would not renounce his Savior. Now, this letter to Smyrna is similar to the letter of Philadelphia in that there is no word of condemnation from Christ to this church. 
Now, most letters, as you remember, my description last week, have a word of commendation, positive, and a word of condemnation, negative, from the Lord. These are some good things you have done. Here are some places where you need to grow. Here are some places where you have failed. However, the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia have no negative word toward them. It is all positive in what they have done. It is also interesting to note that the two churches that received no negative word from the Lord, Smyrna and Philadelphia, those two cities still survive to this day. The cities in which these churches were placed still survive today. Out of the seven, they're the only two, uh, two cities that survive out of the seven. That's interesting in that those churches got no word of condemnation from the Lord and the cities are still surviving. Now, this letter to Smyrna is the shortest of the seven letters and it is composed entirely of praise for the congregation. So let's read it together. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Hear these words of Jesus. If you have a red-letter Bible, you see that this is indeed in red. These are words of the Savior to this church body. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. May God add his blessing to the reading of this portion of his word, the letter to the church in Smyrna. Jesus sends this word to the messenger, to the angel, perhaps the pastor of the church, saying, I am the first and the last. And, of course, if you remember, the first letter of the Greek alphabet is Alpha. The last is Omega. I am the Alpha and the Omega. There is nothing before Jesus. No one will come after Jesus. But certainly he is before we could ever imagine in time past. And he will always and forever for eternity and eons to come. He will forever be. He is the first. He is the last. When the days of creation took place, Jesus Christ was there. It tells us that very plainly. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. And there was nothing made that was not made without the presence of Jesus being there. Now, even though these Christians were persecuted, this letter assures them, I am still in control of your church. There is nothing that's happening to your congregation that I do not know and that I'm not in control of. Uh, now, I want you to notice the words in verse 8. Uh, Jesus says, Jesus was dead and is alive. Now, those words have great meaning to you and to me. But how much meaning do those words have to people who face death every day? They get up in the morning not knowing if they're going to be alive that night because of the persecution that is coming against, against their church and against their congregation. Though they might die in that day for the cause of Christ, they would indeed 
live eternally. Jesus died, and he now lives. If they should die, they indeed will live. You know, I often wonder how you and I, particularly myself, this is a question for me, how would we react if we knew that simply by coming to this place this night, we might die for it? What would we do? What would I do? I'm certainly not pointing a finger at you. I'm thinking of me. What would I do if simply worshiping the Savior could bring me death? Would I continue to worship? Would I continue in courage? Would I continue in boldness? And that question is for you as well. These words speak to this little congregation in Smyrna. The words speak to us when we study Daniel on Sunday mornings. As we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego right now, they were facing death immediately if they would not fall down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. And yet, if you remember, uh, these three young men said to, the Lord, said to Nebuchadnezzar, we will not dance around an answer. We're going to tell you exactly what we believe, and that is we will not bow down, knowing when they said it that they would go to the fiery furnace that very hour. Would you and I react the same way should death face us immediately? That's the challenge from Daniel. That's the challenge from Revelation in this letter to Smyrna. Now, these words then speak to us and speak to us well tonight. Now, let's look at verses 9 and 10. In these verses are the seven commendations of the Lord. Verses 9 and 10, Revelation chapter 2. The Lord Jesus says to this church in Smyrna, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now, we're going to look at seven positive statements that the Lord Jesus makes about this church. And I want to tell you, as we begin these seven statements, some of the positive nature of the statements are by implication. When we see what Jesus says, he is implying something very positive about this church in Smyrna. So number one, you have your sheet before you? Here's number one, the seven positive commendations to Smyrna. Number one in verse 9 the fact that Jesus knows their works and their tribulation is mentioned. Now, of course, this is not the great tribulation that we're going to study later on in Revelation. This is the trouble and the worry and the danger that they face every day that they live as a church body and as they serve the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, I know how you feel. I know what you're going through in your day-to-day -day ministry. I know the dangers that you face. I know you are brave. And I commend you on your bravery. And so in this first commendation, he is telling them, you keep standing. No matter what you might face, you stand for me. And I will bless you and I will carry you. I know your tribulation and I know your works. Second commendation he gives in verse 9. He says, they are in poverty. By the world's standards, they were poor. Do you remember in the book of the Revelation... Uh, I mentioned this in a sermon two or three or four sermons ago, that the day is going to come under the rule of the Antichrist that if you will not worship him, that you will not be able to purchase food. Do you remember that? 
The day is coming in this world that those who live in the day of the Antichrist, those who will not fall to him, will not be able to purchase food. There will be people literally starving to death. It is highly possible that the vendors in Smyrna would not sell food to the Christians there because of their faith in the Lord Jesus and because of the expression of that faith. Anyone who was known to be a Christian perhaps could not eat, perhaps could not work. So the Lord says, I know you're poor in an earthly way. I know you have very, very little money. I know that you lack material things. However, Jesus says, but I want to tell you, you are very rich. You have so much more than anyone could imagine. We have to be reminded once again that true wealth is not what we hold in our hands. True wealth is not what we can pack away in a bank account. But rather, true wealth is what we have in Jesus Christ living in our hearts and the blessings that we have through him. When we face every day in faith, when our life becomes a journey of service to him, that's true wealth and that's true blessing. And that's blessing that will be rewarded for all eternity. Earthly wealth and earthly stuff one day will all be burned away. Earthly fame will not matter. It will be gone. But the blessings of service to the Lord right now are blessings to us, but will be recognized for all eternity. That is true, true, undying wealth. And that's what the Lord tells them. Third commendation, also in verse 9. Now, here's one of the implication statements that we see. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. The implication here is that the Jews, the Jewish population in the city of Smyrna, was Jewish by blood, but they had left their God. They were no longer truly worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but rather they had begun to serve Satan by their actions and by their worship. Now, perhaps their worship wasn't truly satanic, but it was so far removed from God that it was directed towards Satan. It was fired by Satan. The Jews had left God, had left their love of God, but Smyrna this little band of Christians in this very godless place continue to have true faith. So again, true faith is a condition of the heart. It's a decision that we make every day. Every morning that you and I wake up, we need to say to the Lord, first of all, thank you, Father, for my salvation. That was a, a gift that was given in one moment when I came to the Lord Jesus in repentance and in sorrow for my sin recognizing the cross and recognizing my need for the spilled blood of Jesus. But when we receive Jesus as our Savior, whether we were 6 or 16 or 60 or 90, that split second that we said yes to Jesus is indeed the moment of salvation. But your and my decision to follow him every day and to be his servant every day is a decision that we make in every waking moment. Amen? You have to decide in the morning when you wake up, I am going to follow Jesus today as his servant. I am going to be his witness and his messenger and his missionary in the world today. That is my decision this morning, and I'm going to carry that decision by his grace through this day. You can't have faith because your mama took you to church when you were a child. 
You can't express faith because your granddaddy was a pastor some years ago. This is a heart's relationship one by one with the Savior, and that relationship with him makes you and me either rich or poor. We are rich because we have him as the Savior, but there are many, many people outside of these doors who are very poor. Perhaps there's someone in this sanctuary tonight who is poor as well and that you've never truly received him as your Savior. But that's what makes us rich. And the desire to serve him and follow him and love him every day is what brings true wealth to our life. It's nothing that a bank account can do. It's our relationship with him. The fourth commendation that the Lord Jesus gives to Smyrna, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Notice there is no doubt that suffering is going to continue to come to this little church in Smyrna. Jesus encourages these Christians to stand strong in the face of the persecution and the death that is is absolutely going to be coming their way. Fear none of those things which thou shalt, not may, but shalt suffer. Now, it's, it's interesting to me that Jesus does not promise to take away pain. And that's still true today, correct? It is still true today that Jesus doesn't promise us that we won't suffer in some way, that we won't suffer with some disease, that we won't suffer with some loss that affects our life. He does tell us that there are going to be pains that will come our way. But instead of delivering us and delivering Smyrna from the pain, he says, don't fear it. Don't fear it because I'm with you. Don't let adversity drive you to despair. Let adversity drive you to me. And I believe that's the primary reason that God allows us to go through times of suffering. When we get to the end of our rope and we have nowhere to turn, we know the only place to turn is to him. So he allows us to go through challenges. He allows us to go through cancer. He allows us to go through pain. But it's always to bring us closer to him. Don't fear it. Come to me. And I'll give you the strength, and I'll walk with you through it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'll walk through the fiery furnace with you. I won't take you out of the furnace, but I will walk you through the furnace. So it is true to Smyrna, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to us. Don't fear it. I am with you. Count on that, and you will reap the reward for staying faithful to me. Of course, you remember 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let me get there very quickly. Just write down the reference if you'd like. But if you remember the words of Paul, and I think about them so often, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10 says this, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong." The Lord doesn't always take the thorn of the flesh away from us, but he promises when we are weak with it that he will walk beside us and make us strong. 
that's a thread that runs throughout the Bible, and we see it here in Smyrna. Stay faithful. Don't fear. Stay faithful. All right, the fifth commendation is in verse 10. The devil shall cast some of you into prison. Now, this is important. I want you to notice that he says the devil is responsible for this suffering. He is the root of the trouble in Smyrna. They remained faithful. They took a stand against Satan. While the Jewish population in the city, according to the verse that we see in here, the Jewish population was following Satan and leaving the Lord their God. Yet this little congregation of Christ in Smyrna was following the Lord Jesus. And we have to remember those words of Peter. They were true in the day of Smyrna. They're true today. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. So the word of commendation is though Satan is on your heels, you continue to stay faithful to me. The implication here is they are doing exactly that. There's no word of condemnation, but they are doing exactly that. They're staying faithful to the Lord, even as Satan is persecuting them. Commendation number six, also in verse 10. Ye shall have tribulation ten days. This means that the Lord Jesus is assuring them that they will be persecuted, that they will have problems, that they will face death. However, it is for a defined period of time. It is not forever. It's for 10 days. It's for a defined period of time. We need to realize that our pain, our tears, will indeed come to an end one day. Jesus assures Smyrna their persecution, their suffering, their tribulation is going to be done after that period of specified time, and the Lord knows the end of that time. You know, it's, it's easier to withstand trial when you know the end is somewhere in sight. Uh, there's an old story about a, a man who was asked, what is your favorite verse of the Bible? And he said, it came to pass. And somebody said, well, why is that your favorite verse? And he said, well, thank, thankfully the Lord, the Lord never said it came to stay. It always comes to pass. And that is exactly what the Lord is telling this church at Smyrna. Your persecutions one day will come to pass. Stay strong. Your punishment is not going to last forever. And you will have reward when you stay faithful to me. Seventh commendation is also in verse 10. Be thou faithful unto death. And they were. According to what we see in this letter, these Christians faced death every day. And if they did die for the Lord, they died in faith. Jesus said, if you die for me, I will give you a crown of life. Now, that crown of life is referred to in several places of the Bible. One, most importantly, that I think about is 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul says, I'm coming to the end of my road. I fought my fight. I finished my race. I'm done with my course. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord gives to me, and not to me only, but also to all them who love his appearing. The crown that Paul is talking about there is not this jeweled gold spectacle that sits on your head. And that's not the crown that was most valued in Roman society. The crown that was most valued was the laurel wreath of the Olympian. The one who finished the race and won the race because he was faithful 
in keeping up the pace and doing what he knew he had to do in order to win that race. He crossed the finish line and he won the crown, the laurel wreath to surround his head. That's the crown we're talking about here. Not something with jewels, but a wreath that goes around your head. Jesus said, when you finish your course for me, no matter how it might end, if it ends like the Apostle John where he's approaching or past 90 years old, or if it ends if you're a young person and it ends in death of persecution. However you, your life ends, if it ends in faith, you will have life. And Jesus says, upon my holy word and my reputation, I promise you, you cannot lose if you stay faithful to me. Now, you've heard the seven commendations that the Lord Jesus gives to the church at Smyrna. Let's, like, let's look at that one last verse of this letter, verse 11. Jesus says to the church, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, Jesus says, listen to me. Having ears, hear what I'm saying to you. Don't let it go in one ear and out of the other one. Let it stay in the gray matter because this is really important. He, she who has an ear, be sure you hear this. If you finish your race, if you face the persecution, and if you remain faithful even unto death, you will not be hurt by the second death. Now let's back up. What's the first death? Well, that's the earthly, physical passing uh, of death. But what's the second death? That's the death of leaving the Lord Jesus and spending eternity in hell. That's separation from the Lord. The first birth is the physical birth. The second birth, as we know from Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John, the spiritual birth. Your second birth is your spiritual birth, your birth into the kingdom of God. So according to Revelation, those who have not been born in Christ, those who have never experienced a second birth will experience the second death. However, if you've experienced the second birth, you will not experience the second death. Does that make sense? Uh, I think it was D.L. Moody who said, He was born once, will die twice. He was born twice, will die once. And that's the truth that we see here in God's Word. You know, uh, I've mentioned this in sermons before, and it just comes to mind right now. There is, a, there is a bumper sticker somewhere in this community, and I've seen it many times. Uh, I don't remember what car it's on, but I've seen the sticker many times, and it says, I was born okay the first time. Now, for the general population of folks who don't know the Bible, that doesn't mean much to them. Well, sure, every baby's clean, every baby's born fine. However, that is a, a smack against the Christian faith of saying, I was born okay the second time, uh, first time. I don't need a second birth because I'm okay. I'm okay. I live a good life. I'm a moral person. I'm faithful to my spouse. I'm okay. I don't need a second birth. I was born okay the first time. But if that mindset does not change, that person who pasted that sticker on a bumper is going to face the second death because they were only born once. Amen? It's logical and it's exactly what the Word of God says. So Clifford Baptist Church, these words drive us to stay strong in ministry. We have a work to do. 
And that work is anointed by God. It should be impassioned by the Savior and led by the Spirit. And we are commissioned to take our stand for Christ. J. Vernon McGee, who's one of my favorite personalities, uh, wrote this. America is filled with churches that just want to be politically correct. Rather than be instruments of godly change, they prefer just to fit in and adjust to society. Rather than change society, the church is willing to invite society to change us. And that is absolutely not the definition of the church. We are change agents in this world. We are to take the love of Christ in an uncompromising way to the world. And that's exactly what Revelation teaches us, that we're to take the stand for Christ in our society and let the consequences fall as they may. That's what happened with Smyrna. And yet this was a church of entire commendation from the Lord. Stand for him. Stand for his work. Stand for him in your family. Stand for him in your witness. So tonight, this serves as a challenge for me. And I pray that it serves as a challenge for you. And that as we close this study in prayer, that you and I will say, Lord, I will stand for you. Even if it brings me to the threshold of death, I will not relinquish my love my stand, my witness for you. That's what he said to Smyrna, and nothing has changed in 2,000 years. That's exactly where he wants us to be tonight. If tonight you're here and you've never met this Savior, maybe you've heard about him all your life, maybe you've been in church all your life, but there's a difference between sitting in a pew and inviting Jesus to be your Savior in your heart. If you've never made that decision, seek out Pastor Clyde or me, Uh, or brother or sister here who knows the Lord, and we will help you uh, in understanding how you receive that Savior. May we end our study with prayer tonight. Our Father, our God, thank you for these words of challenge. Lord, I I must admit that I I looked at this church at Smyrna, and I learned about their tremendous persecutions and facing death upon every day. And many of them were promised by Jesus that they would suffer and that they would die, that they would face persecution. There was no doubt in that. And yet Jesus said, fear not, cling to me, and I will bless you and I will carry you. And even if you die in my service, yet shall you live for all eternity. Because I live, you shall live as well. Father, thank you that that is still our promise And, Lord, we depend on that. And even if it brings us in this modern day to persecution and even death, I pray that we will never back down in the good word of our Savior. Tonight, Father, I pray that you will bless us as we bring our prayer concerns to you. I know, Lord, that we didn't have the time to voice our concerns, but we bring them. Tonight, I want to bring one in particular, Bill Nash. He had a fall, and tonight is in the hospital and uh, has a bleed that is happening in his brain right now, Father. We just pray that you will bless him and heal him. He and Margaret are with us just about every Wednesday night as well as Sundays and are so involved in the life of this church and the ministry here. Lord, we lift up our brother Bill to you and pray that you will bless uh, tonight this health condition that uh, resulted from a fall that he took off a ladder. But, Father, we pray that you will bless him, that nothing has to be done in the way of surgery, but rather he will just be able to be healed as he lies in that bed tonight at Lynchburg General Hospital. Lord, bless him and bless Margaret as she is certainly by his side tonight. 
Father, I know that there are many, many other prayer concerns among us, some connected directly with our church and some who are family and friends surrounding us. But, Father, we bring every one of our concerns and our needs to you, and we thank you that you're a holy God who hears us. Tonight, Father, for that one person who suffers with the worst malady of all, that, that sickness of being lost and, and sick and dying with sin, Tonight, Lord, we lift that one to you and pray that he or she will know that Jesus went to the cross to atone for his or her sin. And they can come tonight and simply say, Lord, I am a sinner and I do need to repent and I do need to be sorry for the ways that I have offended you in my life. But Lord, I come to you tonight knowing that it is by the blood of Jesus spilled on the old rugged cross that I am cleansed and I receive Jesus as my Savior Not just knowing him in my mind, but accepting him in my heart and wanting to live that life for him. That tonight is the second birth. And it can happen in this very sanctuary, Father, if one person will say yes to you as Lord and Savior, repenting of sin and asking to be forgiven and asking to be a child of God. Lord, I pray for that miracle to happen if there is that need in this room this night. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you hear our prayer concerns. We thank you that we are one of those churches that stands for you in this world. And you assured every one of these churches in Asia Minor that you are standing in their midst. Tonight, Father, we know beyond a shadow of doubt that you're standing in our midst and you're empowering us, you're impassioning us, and you're driving us into the world to be your servants. We love you, Lord, and we praise your holy name and worship you tonight in the strong, mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ and all God's people said, and amen.